Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. As part of our celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion is sponsoring a series of interviews with employees of Hispanic descent. Today, we're joined by Elitz R. Madera Fliegelman, the chief clerk in Bronx Surrogates Court. Elix, who has been with the court system since 1990, migrated from Puerto Rico with her family when she was just a child. She is a great example of someone who joined the court system at a young age, worked her way up, and is now managing a very busy court, not to mention 35 other people. Elix, thank you for your time. Let's, let's dive right in, if I may. On the occasion of Hispanic Heritage Month, what do you wish that other Americans better understood about Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican community? Um, I would say that the Puerto Ricans are caring people. Um, they, they have great talent. Um, and it's always nice to dream, but you could also be successful. You know, you can hold on to your dreams. And uh, Puerto Ricans are people that share, they get their shirts off their back, they're caring individuals. Um, they may not have as much education as some of them should, but sometimes it's due to poverty and the way they live, but they're always eager to learn, and it gives them an opportunity to see people um, blossom in being Puerto Rican from Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans are also United States citizens, which is why in the introduction I used the word in describing your family's journey here is migrate rather than immigrant, correct? That's correct. Okay. Now, when and why did your family migrate? Um, my father and mother decided to come to New York in 1957 for an economic opportunity for them. Uh, he knew that staying in Puerto Rico at the time, he would not be able to uh, prosper for the family and having four children. Coming to New York gave him an opportunity for a high-paying job. Um, I was the youngest of the four. My two older brothers, one was six and one was four. My sister was two, and I was three months old when we came to New York. Um, so, And then he was able to get a job. So you probably don't have any uh, childhood memories of uh, Puerto Rico, correct? Not really, but um, when my father would speak to us um, when we were a little older, he explained why he came to New York. He worked with his brothers, with my uncles, in the sugarcane thing, uh, fields, I'm sorry, in the sugarcane fields. He was talented, and he was a jack of all trades. He was a composer, musician, he made guitars for extra money. Um, when he came to New York, he got a job in a factory making furniture, and he um, made five money by singing because he had a beautiful voice, and he was a composer, and he loved music. So he played all types of instruments. So sometimes, like, you would see people in the train, he would do that as well, you know, just to make money for the family. Since my mother would be, like, staying home, there were seven of us, so she was like a, a housewife. She took care of us while my father worked. It sounds like your parents were uh, very hardworking people. Yes. On the other hand, my mother was a housewife. She took care of her. There were seven of us, like I said. Uh, she made sure we got along, protected one another. That's what she instilled in us, uh, respect everyone we came in contact with. My mother provided all of us with the soft skills, never being judgmental, be a good listener, get an education, believe in God. My mother was very religious. Always be respectful, value the dollar, and save for a rainy day. Those were the uh, beliefs that she had and she always made sure that she dictated to us that every day. It was embedded in our brain. You know? mm -hmm. Now, did you have any particular role models as a child? 
Um, I would have to say my mother. She was my role model. Um, she, like I said, she embedded in our brain that education was important. The more we learn, the well-rounded we will become. And no one will take away our education. It will also separate us from those who may not have been so lucky to get an education like she did. We never understood what she meant until I recall when I was 10 years old and she uh, sat us all in the living room, I remember, and she explained her childhood. She was the youngest of nine and only attended school up to the third grade. My grandmother became a widow at the age of 58. Um, therefore, she had to have my mother being the youngest of nine and her siblings worked for this family which was well off in Puerto Rico, and what they did was they would go and they had the washboard, um, you know, the little washboard, so my, my grandmother bought one for each of them, and they would go, like, the water or the river and, or the ocean, I would say, and they would wash the clothes, and that's how they earned their money so my grandmother would be able to feed all of them. So my mother wasn't able to finish school. So I guess by also, because they live in poverty, my mother would have to walk to school and she would get cuts on her feet because she had no shoes or she would get blisters from the heat. And then my mother was, uh, she had chronic asthma. So my grandmother was always concerned that she had all to take care of her. And back then the medical wasn't like now. So she always had like these home remedies trying to like take care of my mother with her asthma. Um, so she saying that to us, it made me realize that it was important, like she always used to dictate every day, make sure you get an education, make sure you get an education. And that's what we did, you know, most of us, you know, we, we did. I was the first one to graduate. Um, and then when my father left at the age of 10, I was 10 years old when my mother threw him out because she also lived domestic violence. And unfortunately, like they say, history repeats itself, and it did. Um, so my father left at 10, and my older sister, may she rest in peace, she was 13, I was 11. And we worked in a factory. When we first came to New York, I remember we lived in Manhattan. That's when my father stopped initially. And we were there until I was eight. And then we moved to the Bronx. And we moved to Willis Avenue. And my sister and I, when my father left the house, my mother had no money. Uh, we were too young. My mother had no skills. So my sister and I decided, there was a lady that lived in the building, and she mentioned to us, um, oh, you know, they're looking for someone to work, or a couple of girls to work in the factory. So we said, where, where, where was it? We didn't know where it was, but we used to cross the bridge, my sister and I, Willis Avenue Bridge, and go to Manhattan and work in the factory. So what you were watching television, it was my sister and I working in a factory. My sister learned how to sew. I was on the floor. And it was like piecework, you know, so if, um, it was a two-piece outfit. Um, it was 10 cents I would make. Uh, I would put a tag on the top on the blouse or on the skirt. If it was one item like a dress, it was five cents. My sister would make 10 cents to 25 cents, depending on what she sold. If she sold a collar, it was five cents. If she sold two sleeves, it was 25 cents. So that's how we earn our money. So whatever we made, we would give to my mother. Um, and we would do that after school. We would come home to our homework. And then, you know, tell my mother, okay, we're going to work, and we'll leave, both her and I, and we'll walk the bridge. And it was kind of dangerous back then. <laughs> it wasn't as dangerous as, like, now, but you never knew who you were going to bump into crossing the bridge, you know? Crossing what, like what, 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 what bridge is that? I'm sorry? Crossing what bridge? The Willis Avenue Bridge. Okay. We lived on 138th Street in Willis Avenue, mm -hmm. and we used to cross the Willis Avenue Bridge into Manhattan. So how, how, how old were you when you were going to school and working in... I guess I'm not I was 11. Sweatshop. I was 11. My sister was 13. And we would 
put makeup on. Not that we would look any older, but we would, I guess in our mind, we thought we were a little older by wearing makeup so they could give us a job. Um, and we worked in the factory. And my first real job was when I was 15. Um, I remember I was with a friend of mine who used to be an executive secretary. I was 15 and she was 18. Um, and she was an executive secretary in the city and she worked at 49th Street Avenue of the Americas, which is 6th Avenue. The building that I worked in, which was my first experience at the age of 15, uh, was the, it's now referenced as the Simon & Schuster building, but back then it was the Uniroyal Inc. building. And I was in the elevator with her, and I had already been working in this factory for four years. Um, so I knew that I needed to get an education so I could, you know, have a better future. I knew that I did not want to continue working in the factory. It wasn't for me. Um, I wasn't making enough money back then. And I said, someday I plan to, you know, go to college. I need to make money so I could get an education. And working this little part-time job is not going to get it, you know. Plus, any, anything that I made, I would give to my mom. So it's not like I had money, you know. Um, anyway... So I'm on the elevator with my friend, and um, she's talking to me. Well, you know, when you uh, graduate and you get a little older, maybe I could get you into where I'm working, and you could come in. The only thing they're looking for secretaries. And I said, okay, you know, whatever is better than working in a factory. And I remember there was a, a an older fellow behind me who I did not notice at the time because he was very silent in the, in the elevator. Um, and he pats my shoulder. And he says, uh, young lady, I have a business card for you. So he gives me the business card. And he says, I don't know how old you are, but uh, apparently you're looking for part-time work. And I said, I am. So he says, okay, well, just give me a call. I said, okay. I go home. I'm very excited. I tell my mother, mom, guess what? You know, um, this gentleman behind me, I, I, I was so excited that I was in the city, uh, across the street from uh, Radio City. And I said, oh, one day I'll come in and, and watch a show when I make the big bucks. You know, I'm talking to my mother. And anyway, I called the person, and he says, well, how old are you? And I said, I was 15. He says, well, I can't hire you unless you get working papers. So I went to my guidance counselor at that time, and I said, I know I'm young uh, to get working papers, but I explained to her that, you know, my mother survived domestic violence. There was seven of us plus her, and I was working in a factory. I wasn't making much, and I really needed to get a, uh, a real job. So she helped me get the uh, working papers, um, and then I was able to work like three hours a day. So mm -hmm. I would come home, do my homework, jump on the train, um, get off on 49th Street, work like for three hours, and I learned how to be a secretary. I, I would do like little invoices for the clients. I would make the deposits, I would make copies, I would use a photocopier machine. So I said, wow, this is a different environment. This is me. This is what I could see myself, you know, like working, uh, what is that movie? Uh, what, uh, Melanie Griffin, Working Girl, I think it is. So anyway, so I said, you know what, that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I did. And I worked there for a while, then I graduated, and, uh, and then at that point, then I met my my son's father anyway and, and we'll get into that in a minute we'll get into that later. so that, so, so you're, you're you're 15 years old you're working are you working full-time i was working part-time i couldn't work full-time because i was a minor mm -hmm. and 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 you're going to school so you're in high school you're uh, 15 years old you're carrying down right. a job you're bringing you're helping uh support the family that's a lot that's right. a lot on the shoulders of a 15 year old right well, I didn't have a childhood. Like I said, at the age of 10, my father left the house. At 11, I started working. 
But I knew that education, like my mother always told us, and I remember what she said when she went through at nine years old. So it, it was like similar lifestyle sort of because here she was nine. She was working with my grandmother to support help her support her siblings and my grandmother. And here I was, ten years old. My father had left the house. My mother threw him out because he, he used to beat her. And um, so that was the end of that. And then at 11, at 11, I realized there was not enough money coming in. And uh, the little money that we made, I remember we would, my mother would take us to the store and we would buy whatever we could. And dinner was, you know, those big cans of spaghettis. I don't know if you've ever seen them. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very familiar with them. They were, they were very common in my house as well. Right. So they were huge. And instead of having spaghetti, my mother would, you know, like dress it up a little bit and she would make soup because there were so many of us. So one can was not enough. So she would make soup. So she would, you know, uh, add potatoes and noodles and, you know, we would have bread with butter and that was dinner, mm-hmm. you know. But we were happy because we, were, we had each other and my mother was happy that my father wasn't beating her and we were happy that my father wasn't beating her. So even though we were poor, we were happy as mm-hmm. a family, you know, because we had each other. Sure. Now, so... um at some point, you graduated from high school, and then and th- and then what? Educationally, did you, did you go to college? Right. So I, I attended Walton High School, and I graduated with an, uh, an academic diploma, and then I went to Bronx Community College, and I graduated in June of two thousand with an associate degree. I majored in accounting with a minor in computer science. And, and what school was that? Was, what what school was that? Doors. I'm sorry. What school was that? Uh, I went to Bronx Community College. Bronx Community College, okay. Right, okay. And, and I graduated with an associate. Okay. Now, on your business card, you have an unusual quote. It reads, Master Before Mister. What does that mean? Okay. The Master Before the Mister means education is extremely important. It provides independence, allows you to embrace all types of learning. Your education can never be taken away. It separates you from others not by choice. The more you know, the more you are worth. And on the other hand, having a boyfriend, husband, or partner, sometimes things may not work out, and you may need to be dependent on your education to get a good job and take care of yourself and children if needed. And that I applied to myself because when I met my son's father, I was young, and at the age of 22, I had my son, and that's when the beatings began. So it's like they say history repeats itself. During my pregnancy, he always used to threaten me, but because I was pregnant, he would never hit me, but he would push me around and pull my hair. So I knew eventually the, the punching, I would be a punching bag. I, I felt that. And eventually it did after I gave birth to my son. Um, and the last beating that he gave me, I could tell you exactly when it was and at what time. That was October <laughs> 16, 1982. That's the last beating he gave me. My son wasn't even three years old. And then I said, I was capable of doing something that I knew I should not, but everybody has a dark, dark moment. And I knew, and I said to his mother, I said, this is his last, the last beating he's going to give me. I have a son. I need to move myself, remove myself out of this environment. This is not what I want him to realize or think that this is the way you treat women because it should not be. If you love somebody, you respect them, you work together. And then that's it. You bond together, not to be abusive. And and that was it. I left him. I, you know, he, he would stalk me. Um, it was unfortunate at that time when I worked in another law firm. No, I was still working for um, this law firm that I was working in. And the, the partner, one of the partners, he knew. This was on a Friday when he had beat me up. 
and I called out like that Monday, and I said, I, had, I, 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 feel, I, I guess I was so embarrassed. I said to the partner, I said, I'm not going to be able to come in because I was numbed when I was coming out of the train, and I was beaten, so I'm embarrassed of going in with the bruises on my face. So he, you know, he felt bad. He says, oh, it won't take as much time to heal. But when I went to work, I remember he had put a beautiful bouquet of flowers on my desk. Um, and everybody came over and they were so caring. And you could tell they were genuine. I felt so bad that I had been beaten. And they assumed that it was because I was attacked. I was, but not by what I said initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called me into his office and he says to me, Elix, I don't want to pry into your business. And then I said, yes, sir. And he said, but I feel that you're not being honest. And I said, why do you say that? He says, because you always come to work with a sad face. You're a beautiful young girl, and I don't understand why you're coming with a sad face. And so one day, not that I want to pry, but you want the phone. I don't know who you were arguing with, but I gather it's your husband or whatever, just by the, the conversation. So I started crying, and then I realized that I couldn't lie, because I, I don't lie. And I said, I'm so sorry that I lied. I said, but I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated, and I didn't want people to know my business. Yes, he beats me. But he hadn't already known that, but it, he just wanted me to confirm it. And he was so, you know, sometimes when you're involved with a domestic violence situation, they have a tendency, well, my, my son's father had a tendency, he would beat me and bruise my body up, but he never hit me in my face. That was the first time he hit me in my face. So now I couldn't hide my face. In the summer, I would wear long sleeves and long pants, and my mother would tell me, why are you wearing all those clothes? It's so hot outside. I said, oh, no, mommy, I feel cold or whatever. And it was because I didn't want her to see the bruises on my legs. I didn't want her to see the bruises on my arms because it was the history repeating itself. And my mother already had dealt with that with my father. I didn't want her to start feeling like, oh, my daughter's going through the same thing I went through. I figured I wanted to spare her. And I didn't want my brothers to get involved because my brothers, we were very close, and they always swore to all of us, to my sisters and I, and they always used to say, if you ever get involved with a man, and if they touch a hair on your head, you have to come and tell us right away because we're not going to let you be subjected to the way we were raised that daddy would beat up mommy. We're not going to do that to you guys. So you got to let me know. My older brother, may he rest in peace, um, when we were younger, I think I was like eight. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, when my father left at 10 and my sister was 12, my younger sister was eight, he taught us how to box. We, you know, we had a small apartment. So my mother, we had like bump beds and my mother had like clotheslines. And what we would do, we would make like a little ring in our room. We would bring down the bump beds and make like a little uh, wrestling ring. My brother was the referee and he would put us in the inside of, uh, between the beds and he would show us how to punch. <clears throat> and he showed us how to box because he always used to say, if I'm ever never around or whatever and somebody tries to attack you, this is what you do and you punch them here and you punch them there. So we, you know, like I said, we were very tight family. And, you know, it was sad when he found out that my son's father used to beat me. When he first found out was that beating that he gave me that he put me in bed for a week. Mm. When my brother was a correction officer and he came to the house and he saw me laying out, my mother didn't want to open the door. And he kept on knocking, knocking, knocking. And then finally he opened the door. And when he came in, he saw me on the bed all laid out with a busted lip. And, you know, he opened up my eye. I had a black eye. I was all bruised up. He wanted to kill him. And I said to my brother, you know what? I'm sorry. I made a mistake. He's not for me, but I'll get out of it. I don't want you to go to jail. You have your own kids to raise. This is not what I want. I made a mistake. I should have listened to mommy. When my mother met him first, my mother said, he's no good for you. I don't know what, but she picked it up. She says, you're going to be crying more tears than me. I remember those words. 
And then I said, oh, my God, it was like she sensed it. And I did. I went through hell and back, and I went, and I suffered by myself because I didn't want to share my misery with my mother, who had lived it with my father, and then my brothers, who I knew was not going to allow for me to be subjected to that kind of beating every day from a man that, you know, he shouldn't have been, there was no reason for it. He just, you know, he was a substance abuser, and he was alcoholic, he lost his job. He used to work in the post office, so he lost his job. Now, here I was working in firms, because before I came into the court system, I worked in law firms, and uh, he would beat me. And again, I would cover my body because that's where he would beat me. He would never hit me in my face. He knew what he was doing um, until that day, you know. But anyway, you move on and you learn and you share experience and hopefully somebody else, you can spare them from living the hell that I live. You've used this painful experience to help others. Could you just tell me a little bit about your experience in that regard and your volunteer work with the Violence Intervention Program? Um, I volunteer my time for uh, a program called Violence Intervention Program, Inc., from January 2016 to July 2016 on the weekends and after work. Uh, I, I educate young te- teenagers and share my success story as a domestic violence survivor. And I also, the business cards that I have were the master before the mister, and I explain to them what I lived so that they wouldn't repeat history. Some of these girls were young. They were 14 years old. They had dropped out of school. They were becoming parents. They were being subjected to uh, domestic violence. And even the males. Some of the males were young. They were getting involved with these older girls that just abused them. Like if if the male, for example, had a part-time job, the older girl may have just been using them just to take the money from them. Because some of these girls had problems, and then they were into smoking pot. So they would take the money from the male. So that was the, the part of the domestic violence. They would beat them up and take their money. On the on the opposite to that, uh, the young girls would have babies, and then they would be mistreated, and they wouldn't able to be be able to finish their education. I always let them know that it wasn't the end of the world. Now you just had to work a little extra. Because now you had a child, and that would slow up your education because now you had to depend on someone to take care of your child. But that education should be something that you should always accomplish. Because at the end of the day, now having this child from someone that was not compatible to them, from someone that was abusing them, didn't mean that they should stay in that relationship. Back then, during my time, we didn't have the programs like we had now, like this uh, violence intervention program. They had a lot of programs for them. They had uh, facilities, like if they wanted to get out of the relationship, if they were living with a domestic violence uh, perpetrator, they could go into these shelter homes and be taken care of. Uh, they would just be, you know, to educated programs. They would get them jobs. Uh, I would donate clothes, uh, business clothes as well, to some of these programs because some of these girls had no clothes. I would sit with them. I would show them how to write their resumes. I would educate them on that part. I would also have like little skits with them, how to go through an interviewing process, how to learn how to be interviewed, how to dress, how to sit, how to hold your hand. I did all of that because I felt that I needed to pay it forward and these young girls needed that education because they were not in that environment where they should have been. But because they started hanging out at a young age, for whatever reason, sometimes some of the uh, things in the pain that I went through with my father, some of them were going through the same thing. They had their parents, both. Some, sometimes both parents were substance abusers, 
um, and therefore they felt that there was no way out. So now what they do, they get involved with a guy, and then they figure, okay, that's my way out. They get pregnant. It's not the right guy. Now the beatings come. You know, it was like a whole, it was like a domino reaction to certain situations. Some of these girls I was able to help. Um, and, and like I said, I, I would donate my time to the resume writing, uh, educating them how to go to interviews, how to dress, how to speak. Uh, some of these girls didn't believe in God. And once I said to them, listen, you have to believe in something, you know, and some of them became religious because that's what I learned from my mother too. You have to believe in something. And most important, you have to believe in yourself that you're worth something to somebody. If you're not, if you're not worth if you're not important to yourself, you can't be important to anyone else. That's certainly true. Now, um, thank you. That's a, that's a beautiful story of, of giving back. Um, now, you came to work for the court system back in uh, 1990. Uh, happy happy 30th anniversary, by the way. But how did you come to work for the court system? Okay. In 1990, um, during that time, I started dating my, my husband. Um, he, was, uh, he is a retired um, senior court officer. And he worked in the court system, and we started dating. And I always worked for um, law firms, you know. Um, I came from private sector. So working from the private sector, you work the long hours and what have you. So um, he worked for Bronx Supreme Court at the time. So I always worked in the private sector for the large firms, for example, Chapman and Park, Strick Strick and the Van, Cadet Brothers, just to name a few of the law firms I, I, I worked in. And then I was tired of working the long hours. The court system was offering an entry-level position. At the time, it was the administrative services clerk. I was able to handle all the manual timesheets for the entire court. I was hired by Michael K. Burke, chief clerk at the time. He hired me. He was a little skeptical because I was making a lot of money, and then this was an entry-level. But I explained to him that it wasn't the money that I was looking for. I was looking for stability. I was looking for control hours. I was looking for better benefits, able to be able to spend more time with my family. That was my goal. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the money issue. I knew that coming into the court system, it's not like the private sector, that you make a lot of money. But I wanted normal hours. I have a young child, and I wanted to spend some time with him. I understand. Now, now, um, your your husband is a is a court officer or was a court officer? Right, he he retired. What's what's his name? What's his name? David Fleegelman. Okay, Davis. Did you say? David. 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 Okay. David. Now you said the same last last name Fleegelman. I'm sorry. Fleegelman, the same last. I have a hyphenated. Right. You live from Madera Fleegelman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So he he retired in um, 2015 as a senior uh, court officer. Okay. He was a union delegate. Uh, he was an EMT for the courts. So he had also a good career in the courts. Okay. Now, you've, you've uh, pretty steadily uh, climbed the court system career ladder. Were opportunities for advancement readily available, or did you have to scratch and claw and fight your way to uh, the top? Well, I'm a firm believer you should never give up in trying and aiming for anything you want in life. At the end of the day, I'm the person to say, I could have, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say I could have, should have, and did not. I'm a motivator by nature, and I practice what I preach. I see, I see it, believe it, and claim it. Every time I apply for a job, it did not matter what it was, uh, if it was an entry level, uh, what what it entailed. I wanted to learn. I wanted to share the experience and acquire the knowledge in doing so. And that's the same uh, model that I follow in advocating for the courts and telling people. You know, you're working in private sector, you're making a lot of money, but at the end of the day, this is a better uh, job. 
future wise. It has stability. It offers great benefits. So much knowledge. There's so many people that work here that do different things. The court has so many facets to learn, whether it's family court, housing court, civil court, Supreme Court, you name it. You learn a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Now, in the uh, in your 30 years, how have things changed for employees of different origins, or, or have it, has it changed? Well, I am a board member of the Gender Fairness Committee, and I have seen and witnessed firsthand the changes in our court system, allowing all employees from different backgrounds, cultures, and countries get promoted. Our employees are a reflection of our community and our future in the unified court system. I believe that. Now, how does how does diversity enrich the court system? The diversity enriches the court system by allowing everyone to bring their strength, talents, and sharing knowledge. Working together, we share different issues, views, and experiences, which provides a better system for our unified court system and the community we represent every day. Now, of course, you, you I imagine, share your background and heritage uh, with other people you work with. What have you learned from a person of a culture different from your own? Well, working in the Bronx ever gets caught, quite often people come into the courthouse from all parts of the world. They have different languages, and we use the language line to assist them. Most of them, after having interaction and speaking with them in regard to someone passing away, I realize we have empathy, sharing, kindness, and understanding allows them to warm up to our courthouse so we can make their, their visit easier than expected. We are all human beings, and by nature, appreciate one another. When we show empathy, caring, kindness, regardless where they are from, we are all the same when we get to the core. That's great. Now, when you joined the court system, there had never, ever been a person of Hispanic heritage on, on the Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. It wasn't until 1994, uh, nearly four years after you started, that Governor Mario Cuomo appointed the Honorable Carmen Beauchamp Saperic, the daughter of two migrants from Puerto Rico, to the court. Was that a special moment for you and people in your community? Yes, it was. It was an awesome, It was awesome to see someone from Puerto Rico accomplish a high position of this nature in the courts. A woman from Puerto Rico is an inspiration to all groups. She opened a door who we may have thought would never be possible. I knew at this time it was the beginning of diversity, enrichment to our unified court system. Wow. So quite an impact. Now let's get back to you. Uh, before you became a manager, uh, you were active in the CSEA, the labor union that represents thousands, probably tens of thousands of government employees, and you served as a chief union representative. Why did you get involved in the union? Okay. I held a position with the CSEA union as a chief union representative. I began as a union delegate in October 2002, and in 2006, I was promoted to a chief union representative. I was a board member of the Political Action and Safety and Health Committee until August 2016. It gave me an opportunity when I was promoted to Deputy Chief Clerk for Bronx Surrogates Court, it allowed me to step into a managerial position with knowledge of both sides of the fence, dealing with employees and protecting both management and employees, knowing the protocols and procedures and applying them when needed, especially when the employees needed to be educated to understand that anywhere you go, there's procedures and policies in place. And my role as a union representative, of course, I had to step down, but this was uh, an asset to me being hired, I was able to have both the knowledge of a union representative representing the employees and also knowing the pros and cons of management. There's a lot of times that I have situations with the employees 
And before even the union gets involved, I bring him into my office and I say, these are the choices, this is what the reality is, and this is what management stance is. And I am representing management. You also have your um, your uh, protection as a member, but at the end of the day, this is what we have to meet and this is what we have to make sure that we both do what we need to do. You as an employee and me as a management and we meet in the middle and everything gets done. And it usually works. Now, now that you're um, dealing with the unions from a decidedly different perspective, has your perspective on unions changed any? Um, it's changed a little bit. Um, you know, when you look at both sides, like working in the court system, like for example, right now, de- dealing with the pandemic, I'll give you an example. We have employees that step up to the plate, you call them up with this two-week rotation, they come in, no problem. If I need to pull them out from one department and put them in another department because, let's say, I can't have you in or I don't come in, they roll up their sleeves and they do what they need to do. On the other hand, I may have an employee that they've been out five months and now they still don't want to come in because now they're so used to staying home. But at the end of the day, while you're staying home, you have to come back. You know, I sort of say you have a responsibility and an obligation. You have a, you're have getting paid to do a job and you cannot do it from home. This particular responsibility that you have you have to apply it being in the court system. You can't do it from home. So I'm dealing with that situ- situation. And, you know, looking at that and looking at the businesses that are going out of business when you have employees that are collecting unemployment and they're making more money collecting unemployment versus if you have a good employee that has treated you good and all of a sudden you're trying to, you know, get your business up and running because it's been closed for so many months, at the end of the day, you have to be realistic. The unemployment is going to run out. The employer will always be there as long as you do your job. Mm. So, um, what exactly does a chief clerk in surrogates court do? Um, as a chief clerk, I'm responsible to handle all the um, petitions. I, you know, I, I'm responsible for supervising the employees and maintaining the services we provide to the attorneys litigants, pro se's, and the public are met. The petitions which are e-filed, hand-delivered, or mailed are reviewed and processed timely in the various departments, accounting and miscellaneous, administration, guardianship, probate, and voluntary administration in small estates. My job is to make sure that everything that comes through that door is handled on a timely basis. We also handle on an emergency basis as well. Sometimes, you know, I have to go to the judge and say, okay, this is a, an extraordinary situation. We, we work together, we make sure that the paperwork's in order, and we process it expeditiously. Now, with the COVID, we have a lot of people that have passed away in the Bronx, so we are being inundated with the small estates. But even though we have limited staff, like I said, I have staff that roll up their sleeves, and I call them out of one department and say, okay, we show staff in the small estates, let's roll up our sleeves, let's go in there and do what we need to do, and I'm glad that we have good employees that do that here. And we all make sure that at the end of the day, we comply with what's expected of us. And we want to make sure that everybody that walks through that door leaves, you know, happy that their petitions were handled expeditiously. And if they have a question, we make sure that we answer them as well to make sure that the petitions are in order and we don't hold up their paperwork. You and meant, it's a you, pride and joy to do that. You, you've mentioned a few times the need to do things expeditiously. And, of course, uh, surrogate court handles some particularly sensitive and time-sensitive matters, like estates, guardianships, uh, things that could uh, dramatically affect the life of a child. Um, 
and that that must be a there must be a, a constant sense of urgency in in what you do. Is that accurate? There is absolutely, and what happens is, like I said, we've all bustled. I'm one of those people. I don't. This is why I guess I've been successful in life. I never say that's not my job. I've been promoted in the course system already seven times, and that's from I'm, I'm a jack of all trades. I guess I inherited that from my father. I, you know, I'm like a decaf person here. You know, if an employee wants a bulletin board up, I go and I hang it up for them. Um, during the pandemic, I was picking up employees and bringing them to work because they didn't want to deal with the public transportation. I was picking them up, bringing them to work, making sure that they did what they had to do. So I became an over uh, cab driver. You know, um, I do what I need to do. The work has to get done. At the end of the day, I take pride and joy to paying it forward and making sure that the people that need our services, the services are provided. Like you mentioned, we deal with a lot of cases that are time sensitive, and there's a lot of things like that. Somebody dies in an apartment, um, they have to get in, they have to get a will, uh, there's an uh, insurance policy that they need to get to so they can pay the funeral home. We make sure that all those proceedings are done expeditiously. We have a help center. Uh, the person comes in, and they're, they're not fluent in English. She's bilingual. She helps with like, the language line. It's also an asset. We have people. Now we have the doors closed, but we still provide services over the phone. Uh, we're doing the guardianship uh, virtual right now as well. We, we want to make sure that everybody that needs our services, they're done timely, expeditiously, and making sure that the petitioner, the attorney, the litigant, whoever it is that needs the paperwork done, gets completed. So it doesn't hold them up. Like if somebody dies and they have to sell a house, we, we take care of that. You know, we make sure everything is done. And that's the cross-training as well. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the more you know, the more you work. So I cross-train the staff. And I move them from one department to the other. So at the end of the day, you're a clerk. You should be able to know how to do a guardianship matter. You should be able to know how to do a probate, an administration, a small estate. And that's where it, it's team effort. And this is the best place to work in. It sounds like you're good at keeping your eye on the goal and uh, and in promoting an atmosphere where the um, objective is to get the job done. Yes, yes. Now, a moment ago, we talked about uh, childhood role models, and, and you singled out your mother in, in, a, in a very big and, and uh, enduring way. What about adult or professional role models or mentors? Are there any of those? Uh, in professional roles? Uh, Michael Kickberg, Chief Clerk, Walter J. Nicholson, Deputy Chief Clerk, Administrative Judge Barry Solomon, Administrative Judge uh, John P. Collins. They gave me the opportunity to come into the court system and believe in me and allowed me to learn everything and any clerical tasks were introduced. And I challenged myself every day to perfect this output and leaving a trail for the next person to carry on the task. Currently, I would like to say personally and professionally, I want to thank my surrogate judge, Honorable Melida Malave Gonzalez, who's a role model and someone to look up to, who granted me the opportunity to work in Bronx Surrogates Court. Every day is an opportunity for me to pay it forward, and what better place to do exactly that is in the surrogates court. When we're dealing with sensitive matters and people that come through that door with different issues, and this court, we have empathy, we have understanding, and we make sure that anyone, like I mentioned before, that comes to our court are taken care of. Now, you are now in the position of a role model yourself, and in that position, what would you tell someone who was thinking about a position in the courts? What would you tell someone in your own family? Would you tell them, come to work for the courts or go find a job elsewhere? I would say we never close the doors for any new challenges. 
or getting the court system may not have the highest salaries when looking for a job, but they offer promotional opportunities and the wealth of knowledge we can embrace every day. They offer great benefits, structural hours, wonderful people, and a mind of of gold, of so much experience that you could acquire, and we're learning every day. And this, why not the court system? And finally, and in keeping with the spirit and the theme of this program, Hispanic Heritage Month, are there any cultural traditions that you and your family maintain that you'd like to share with the, uh, the melting pot that is the American mosaic? Well, our, our cultural um, experience, I know Thanksgiving is something that happens um, during November, but Thanksgiving is something that we always embrace in my house every day. We thank each other. I mean, unfortunately, from us being seven, uh, we're down to three, and I'm, I was a middle child, and I'm the oldest, and I have two of my brothers. Um, and it's amazing growing up. My mom, she always used to say I was a special, uh, special child. I never understood that until now that I'm older. Um, when we were growing up, my mother, who was subjected to domestic violence, when my father would do his craziness, my mother would wake me up and she would tell me, let's go follow your father. And I always used to say, but mommy, I, I'm tired. I, I got to go to school tomorrow. Why don't you go to some of my other siblings? And she would say, no, 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 you're my special uh, special daughter. And I would go with her. But anyway, it turns out years later, I guess now I understand, I buried my older brother, but he was in peace, and he was 39. He was a correction officer. I then buried my, my father died before my, my, my brother. Then my youngest sister passed away. I buried her. My uh, older sister died and I buried her. And this is all during my mom being alive. Then my mother passed away and she had Alzheimer's. May she rest in peace. As a matter of fact, it'll be four years on August 20th, which is her anniversary of four years being dead. It'll be 30 years of my anniversary being married to my husband. She died on my anniversary. Um, and then recently, last year, I buried my second older brother, who was intellectually challenged. So I think that's what she meant. I was always educated. I was always a bookworm. Uh, you know, my siblings would, you know, when my father left the house, we all hit the streets. But I was always reading. I was always in my room doing my homework. And my mother would say, go and play with your friends. And I would say, no, mommy, I have my homework to do. And I guess because she always told me, and the fact that I remember that, she said she couldn't go to school and she wanted it so bad. I wanted to have her be proud of me. So when I got promoted for deputy chief clerk, my mother had died already. And I started here. So I buried her um, uh, August 24th, and I started here August 25th. Now, you, you've, you, so just told me, you just told me two things that sound completely inconsistent. One, you've had a life that's involved trauma physical abuse, mental abuse, a great deal of tragedy and loss in your family. And then you told me that in your life and in your mind, every day is Thanksgiving. How can that be? Every day is Thanksgiving because I, I say I thank God. And I remember those, those are moments that I cherish in my heart. And my brother, may he rest in peace, he was the chef in the house. And he would cook for us every day. When he got divorced from his wife, he... I had four children, so he became the cook in my mother's house, and he's the one that kept the family together. So even though they're not around to me, 
Thanksgiving is the most precious, precious holiday. Because when I make dinner in my house, and even though it's my husband and my daughter and my son and my grandkids, I always look at them and I reminisce when I was young and my mother would make dinner for us. And then my brother took over and he would do the dinner for us. And now, even though that's gone, I still do that. Because I have a tradition in my house and that's my tradition is Thanksgiving. I was giving thanks. What, 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 a, what a wonderful memory and what a wonderful place to end. Elix, thank you so much for your time, and, and thank you for sharing what I know is some very uh, personal information with our listeners. Thank you so much. And, and you know, like I, I like paying it forward. I One of the things that my mother taught us, and I, and I always do that, I'm never judgmental. I, I, I'm a good listener, and I forgive people. Even the people that hurt me, I that doesn't mean that you're going to hurt me twice. I've already learned that. You know, I've developed thick skin, but that doesn't mean that I will, I'll forgive you, but that doesn't mean I'm going to trust you again. You follow? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again so much for your time. And uh, please stay uh, uh, safe and healthy and, and happy. Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the Court Systems website at www.nycourts.gov. And you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.